My podcast guest today is Professor Michael Crawford. He is Director of the Institute of Brain Chemistry and Human Nutrition at Imperial's Chelsea and Westminster campus. He is founder trustee of the Mother and Child Foundation and the Little Foundation, president of the McCarrison Society and winner of numerous awards, including the Order of the Rising Sun in Japan and the Chevro Medal in France. As you'll find out, he really put omega-3 on the map in relation to brain health, and in so doing discovered why our mental health is in decline and our brains are shrinking, and what we have to do to preserve humanity, which is the subject of his new book, The Shrinking Brain, co-authored with David Marsh. He also helped me get the Food for the Brain Foundation started back in the 90s. Your book, The Shrinking Brain, with David Marsh, is a tour de force. It's out now, and anyone interested in nutrition or mental health must read this book. But let's start with a basic accusation, and that is that the human brain has shrunk substantially, and that it coincides with a change in circumstances most likely to do with diet. Has human brain size been shrinking? Yes, is the short answer. Uh, the long answer starts by demonstrating what most people really know is that we evolved from a chimpanzee-sized brain of only 340 cc's cranial capacity some five to seven million years ago. <clears throat> and wild foods were a mixture of stuff from the land and stuff from the sea. <clears throat> the epigenetic encephalization, the expansion of the brain, so to what we now have today. So it's clear that brain size was expanded by the nutrition that provided the building bricks for the brain and all stuff that supported it. So there is your first answer, that the environment, the nutrition, was fundamental to the increment of brain size. Now, <clears throat> uh, then we get Homo sapiens arriving. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, years ago. I'll, I'll come into Homo sapiens in a minute. Yeah. But because um, there's a lot of debate about when exactly Homo sapiens appears on the scene. But there are two bits of, of, of interesting examples. There's one is in. Um, the pinnacle point in South Africa where Curtis Marians has done a lot of excavation in the caves around that point there. I've been there and seen it myself. And there's incontrovertible evidence that people lived in these caves, which is on the coast, and that they um, exploited the marine food web considerably. They also use the land food web, no question about it, but there's incontrovertible evidence of the earliest really serious evidence of culturally adept Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago using the marine food web. So that was part of it. <clears throat> now we come to roughly the same time in Herto, which is up Ethiopia way and rather not more <laughs> northern in Africa. Um, and <clears throat> the fossilized skulls produced a, a cranial capacity of um, 1,450 cc's. So we've gone from 340 cc's to 1,450. And that was the beginning of Homo sapiens. So these were intellectually the same as us. Now, we come down a little bit further to um, Cro-Magnon. We come down to 28,000 to 32,000 years ago. And cranial capacity that had been reported during that time range from 1,500 cc's to 1,700 cc's. Today's cranial capacity is 1,336. I'll repeat that, 1,336 down from only 30,000 years ago, 
1,500 to 1,700 cc's. This is a massive reverse in encephalization. I mean, that's a 20% loss yes. in huge size. Yeah. Now, of course, there is another, you know, sort of much earlier, I mean, you know, much more present um, measurement, which of course was nothing we can assess back then, <coughs> which is measuring IQ. And um, is IQ going down now, generation by generation? Well, the Flynn effect, of course, was that IQ went up and up and up and up. But <clears throat> since 1950, um, Alfred University has published data showing that uh, since 1950, it's been a steady decline post-war. Yes, I saw a figure of something in the region of 7% a generation, but uh, you know, on this downward curve, whatever it might be, I mean, that, that's quite catastrophic. Um, and what's the prediction of what happens if... Well, I, I mean, it's just totally logical. Let's face it, it's been associated with an increase in mental Ill health of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the logic of that is that if it continues without intervention, that it wipes out humanity. Yes, I, I know that you have said that by 2080 on this trajectory, we've got about one in three <laughs> children will be mentally retarded. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that those are my words, but, but I, I would, around about um, 2080, you, you probably look at about half the population being borderline mentally deficient. Yeah. And of course, um, what about mental health? Is it getting worse? <clears throat> Well, this is an interesting question, Patrick, because we predicted in 1972 that unless people paid attention to the needs of the brain, the nutrition of the brain, that um, the brain disorders would, would inevitably follow. Um, and similar to the way that heart disease rose, we were going to see, this is all in our book, what we eat today that we published, and it was referred to by Graham Rose in the Sunday Times who said, unless we do something to care for the brain, we're going to become a race of morons. Now that's in the Sunday Times, 5th of November, 1972. So it's quite clear that what we were writing from the work that Andrew Sinclair and I had done at that time, from the evidence that was being produced also by Gene Anderson, Nicholas Bassan and others, that that unless you do something about the brain, it's, it's going to go down. It's, it's going to be affected. It has to be. Um, you can't maintain a building without uh, keeping care of the building bricks that are holding it up. And this, we've just not cared for it. And there's further evidence of that. If you want to know, I can tell you about that. <coughs> well, I mean, you'd think a government must do an inquiry. Has well, yes, inquiry? Now, now, now we come to government inquiries. Um, nobody really bothered about it. I mean, there was, since 1972, there's been a huge, uh, been a bunch of people across the planet concerned about exactly what we were saying in 72. And um, we come to 2004. The um, European Union decided to do an audit of health, the cost of ill health. And they published it in 2005. Brain disorders came top of the list. Um, the cost was 386 billion euros for brain disorders. Well, you would have thought somebody would do something about it, but no, 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 no. People said, yeah, we always hold you to you know, better diagnostics of the psychiatrists and so on and so forth. And so, so they did it again, 2010. The number came out at 789 billion. Doubling the cost. <laughs> Just about, yes. Well, yeah, a new country had been added. I can't remember which one it was, but it was only a little country. So um, during that time, we knew what was going on in, in, in Europe with these brain disorders coming out at the top of the list. And it really made us angry that nobody was doing anything about it. So we got Lord Morris. Um, he was a champion of, of disabled people and things like that. Um, he was a, a previous um, Labour um, 
What was the cost of mental ill health in, in the UK? We've got, got this number in Europe. You know, what's going on in the UK? And <clears throat> Warner said, <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't know the answer to that question. But he did know. He did know that the cost of drugs in hospitals for mental health problems had been escalating phenomenally. So given the credit, they did the numbers. Joe Nurse produced them in, 19, in 2007, and the number was 77 billion. And as with the EU audit, brain disorders was the top of the list. And Joe said, wait for it, the cost of mental ill health in the UK is greater than heart disease and cancer combined. That was the size of it. So a lot of people said, yeah, boo, it's all due to psychiatric things. So she did numbers again in 2010. And it was um, 105 billion, up from 77. So the Wellcome Trust raised its eyebrows and said, well, we need an independent survey. So in 2013, they did the numbers, and it was 2013, sorry, 1,013 billion, um, again, higher than anything before, and again, brain disorders at the top of the list. There you have five, four government, one independent, assessments, audits of ill health, putting brain disorders at the top of the list. You would have thought people would have responded. You'd have thought people would have responded to that. But no, they didn't. Maybe our MPs are not eating enough. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I just don't... It's incomprehensible yes. that there's been no reaction to that. And come now to this year, um, <clears throat> the Federation for European Neuroscientists in March and the Brain Awareness Week came out with a statement that um, brain, brain health is now a global emergency. Mm. Mo a global emergency. That, that's what they came up with. Now, so it's incredible. It is, and it's shocking. And um, I want to explore that more, but I'd actually like to fill in a few pieces, literally, um, and explore the million-dollar question, which is why... Um, uh, which your book goes into great detail. Let's go right back to the beginning with Darwin. All right. Now, yeah. what did he actually think was driving evolution? Now, that's a very interesting question, which David Marsh really is a pretty expert in, and um, which is why he wrote two chapters in the book, and they're really wonderful chapters. Um, <clears throat> but Darwin in... <clears throat> All six editions of his book says that there are two forces in evolution. There are two forces in evolution. Natural selection and conditions of existence. And then he says, conditions of existence is the most powerful. Now this is really blindingly obvious. Because, I mean, you know, if you take, take, take a very simple example, when there was no air-breathing life living, when there was no oxygen. But as soon as oxygen comes into the atmosphere, we have the all 32 phyla emerging in the Cambrian explosion in a, a matter of a flick of a finger almost, but, geologically that is. Anyway, um, so the conditions of existence really actually set what can be done or what cannot be done. <clears throat> and um, a bit later, uh, people thought this was too Lamarckian. And August Weissman uh, wrote a paper called the, um, the, the... He wrote a paper on the conditions of existence. He, he wrote a paper on the all-sufficiency of natural selection. Now, what was in his paper. Well, 
So it really is funny, but but because what he did was to cut the tails off a bunch of mice. <laughs> and they kept on producing tails. I mean, this is just stupid. Because I mean, the Welsh farmers, as you well know, I mean, they cut the tails off sheep and have been doing so for hundreds of years, and they still keep on growing tails. And I gave a talk at um, the Whittington Hospital once, and, and I mentioned this, and I said that this was a stupid thing. I, 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 a stupid thing, but it changed the whole view of evolution. It, it was called neo-Darwinism now, in which evolution was thrown out the window. Not, not evolution, sorry, environmental conditions. The conditions of existence were thrown out the window. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, an elderly gentleman got up after I talked about this at the Whittington, and he said, uh, Professor Crawford, um, the man with a name like Weissman ought to have known better. His race has been cutting the foreskins off children for three thousand years or more. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that just shows how stupid this was. But it was swallowed, hook, line, and sinker by, by the establishments of the day, and really was led into the basis of gene-centered evolutionary process and gene-centered philosophy. And that also <clears throat> gene-centered thinking was, you know, we are the superior race. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, it's all buys into imperialism and Aryanism yeah. and, yeah. you know, white superior. And that's almost certainly why it was accepted yeah. so easily. Yeah. So really conditions of existence. So let's go right back to the beginning. What are the conditions of existence that would have been necessary? What do we know about the very origin of the brain and nervous system? Yeah, that's very simple. Um, the brain evolved in the sea. You can't escape this 500 to 600 million years ago. And we think the way that it happened is, is that, um, and we're not alone in this, by the way, uh, that the... <coughs> In the Vendian and the early Cambrian, there was no ozone layer. So the planet was bathed in solar ultraviolet radiation. And there's a molecule called the cosahexanoic acid, which absorbs light in the ultraviolet. And we know that the dinoflagellate, which is sort of a representative of what, one, one of the very earliest life forms. In fact, there's fossil evidence of something very similar to our dinoflagellate today cropping up in rocks sort of <laughs> all that time ago. Um, it's, it's full of DHA. Or tocosahexanoic acid, we call Omega-3 DHA. Uh, Omega-3 DHA. Full, full of it. Hexanoic acid. Decosahexanoic acid. Six double yeah. bonds. Six double bonds. And those six double bonds are electrically active. Mm-hmm. And that's where the UV is absorbed and exciting the electrons. And um, so what we think happened was that the UV would have excited the DHA electrons and they would have sparked off and started... Well, you know, giving a shock to the this little min, minuscule thing, and that would make it move. So where would it move? Obviously, to where the light was, which is where the food was. So that we think how the thing started, and and so this electrical uh, communication from docosahexanoic acid um, would almost certainly have propagated the evolution of the nervous system, and ultimately the central nervous system down the line quite a bit. So that's the way we think it happened. And the interesting thing, Patrick, is this, that um, uh, John Sargent, who worked on these sort of things, uh, sea stuff um, at Stirling University, did analysis of dinoflagellates, and he came up with the the fact that he saw Die to cosahexanoic acid. This is the, the the normal membrane lipid contains two hooks, one of which contains an unsaturated and the other contains a saturated. So those has these two hooks normally. The, the dinoflagellates got DHA on both. Mm. This is highly unusual. And wait for it. Your photoreceptor has not only got DHA in it in the highest concentration of any other cell in the body, but it also has di-DHA, as is in this dinoflagellate. This is the photoreceptor in the eye. The photoreceptor in the eye, yes. 
the, uh, the same as the dinoflagellate 600,000 years ago. So that's how we think it all started, because it all started with the eye, with vision and things. The eye is an extension of the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Well, the brain is an extension of the eye, actually. It's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, uh, you sent me your extraordinary paper, um, DHA Vision Entropy. And I, I want to say here that uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I had uh, one of those extremely lucid dreams where I was walking towards your house and it was sunny huh. and you let me in and uh, I was actually sort of sitting on a chaise long type thing. We were having a nice chat All right. and it inspired me to give you a call and uh, you know ask you what was going on. And you told me that you, at least theoretically, think you've worked out one of the great mysteries, which was how exactly do the photons that hit our eye turn so rapidly and so precisely into the image that we see that says, ah, it's Patrick, it's blue, it's green, and so on. And we probably can't go too much into the nuclear physics, but in essence, what do you think? This is your new discovery, isn't it? Well, I don't know about that, but... Um, uh, I mean... You have to, uh, oh dear me, you have to get into quantum mechanics to explain this. But when light hits retinol, which is the now, uh, once, once the ultraviolet was cut out by the ozone layer, nature had to find a new answer to photoreception. And the photoreception was through vitamin A, or vitamin A product, which is retinol. And retinol has an 11 cis double bond. And that, like DHA's double bonds in the past, uh, accepts photons. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, actually, because what it does, what the photon does, is to excite one of these electrons into the escape mode. Uh, but retinol says, hey, I don't like this, and grabs it back again. <laughs> but you see, the double bond uh, has to break when the electron leaves. So it reforms, not in the cis form, but in the trans form. Now that that's, uh, won't mean anything to the, the lay public probably, but the, the completely change of shape. And the interesting thing about the complete change of shape is that the cis form, uh, which is a bit like a U, um, is at the higher energy than the trans form. So there's a chunk of energy that's been generated by the difference between these two and by the photon itself exciting this change. So we've got a chunk of energy which consists of the cis-trans difference and the photon. Now that's got to go somewhere or the retinal will just heat up and you know, it might not be a good idea. It could do damage. So it's got to be trapped. Now rhodopsin is and DHA are united and DHA surrounds rhodopsin so there's one heck of a lot of DHA and di-DHA just sitting next door to this thing so what we propose is that DHA now its job now is to absorb that energy which it can do and we show experimental evidence uh, rather spectroscopy and so on to show how it's feasible for DHA to absorb that energy but then you see the membrane is hyperpolarized. A big potential difference, positive, negative, across the membrane. So if you've got a, an electron excited with all this energy stuffed into it, it gets extracted. So again, DHA is playing a pivotal role in phototransduction, because that then electron then pushes off and, and, and uh, takes the information to the brain. So this is a sort of chain reaction of energy, information, yeah, 
Go, going yeah. from from the um, isomerization to DHA, and then the uh, uh, electron buzzing off to because you see uh, uh, George Wald, who discovered all this retinal stuff, said that the explanation for visual transduction after this event there's nothing in this event that's fast enough to explain. So these, these reactions that, that take place with rhodopsin and G proteins and all sorts of things that people have discovered um, are too slow to explain mm. vision. But an electron, whoo, <laughs> yeah. fast enough. So, you, so you've got a you know, fast and direct way of communication. And I'm fascinated in that because um, I, I was a psychologist originally studying schizophrenia and uh, came across the wonderful work of Dr. Abram Hoffer. And uh, that he had developed, he was uh, head of psychiatric research in part of Canada, and he had developed the disperception scale, uh, right. looking at schizophrenics. So we see so many you know, conditions, anorexia is a classic example, where there is disperception. Mm. So, so it's about the, you know, the correct information, yeah. how you perceive of that. Yeah. So I think, of course, with lack of the right nutrients, yeah. you know, the brain is not going to perceive right. things correctly. That's correct, yes. You know, and then we Absolutely. have mental illness. Now, back in the 60s... Now, before, before, you, before I move on to anything else, there's yeah. a very critical component of this because it's the quantum mechanical aspect of, of what's going on here. Um, the absorption of the energy by DHA, as I mentioned, contains the energy of the cis-trans business and the photon. Okay? Yeah. So, according to the law of energy conservation, you can't lose it. You can't change it. You know, a, a, a photon from a, a supernova <laughs> 10 million light waves, light years away, yeah. retains its purity for us to see, despite traveling 10 million light years. So this is the law of conservation of energy. And so this energy is conserved. Now the cis-trans business is common to all excitations. The only difference is the photon. The wavelength of the photon and wavelength and energy are interchangeable in mathematical terms. So, in effect, what we're doing is transferring the wavelength, color, to the brain. And that's how we see in color. And nobody else has explained properly color vision. Somebody, one group of people, in fact, a bunch of people, a whole bunch of people said it was the, the only way you could explain it was the photons were actually transferred. And there was a, a really serious um, um, uh, mechanic, a quantum mechanical expert wrote a paper to say this is absolutely impossible for the photons to do this. That, that's so <clears> interesting. <throat> and not bad discovery to make. I don't know, it's when a discovery. You're I mean, it's just, or I'm it's thinking it through, <laughs> but, but uh, your first sort of, you know, <clears throat> big uh, discovery, I think, was back in the 60s when you started to analyze different kinds of fatty acids in the organs of different animals. And brains. And brains. Yeah. That's so, what gave, us the, gave it away, yeah. Yeah, so what did you find? Well, we, uh, essentially, we found that if you looked at the... Um, what people need to understand is that the cell is made of membranes and that everything that happens within the cell is, is regulated via the membranes and the membrane composition. And um, so uh, um, we, we decided to look at the membrane by looking at the things that make the membranes, namely the lipids. The reason for this is that the brain is made of lipid or fats, that's what we call So we looked at the lipids of um, uh, originally 36 different species, um, mammalian species. And we looked at the livers of these animals. They're all over the place. For example, a, a zebra had something like 42% linoleic acid and um, 4, 4%, um, arachidonic acid and about 2% disclosopentanoic acid, but next to nothing of DHA. So um, 
then you know it just varied across across the whole species but when we looked at the brain there was no variation they're all the same all animals all animals same 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 Same. fats but the the difference was the extent to which the brain had evolved size of the brain again showing the conditions of existence determining what's happening in the evolutionary process and DHA being DHA being well the the whole point was that that, that, um, um, in fact we first published it in 1969 that uh, the land based mammals had little or no DHA because you can make it from green foods um, uh, but it's a very slow, slow, slow process. So you get little animals like squirrels or hyraxes or something like that who've got very big brain-to-body rate, rate ratios. Um, in fact, squirrels have got 2.5%, which is much bigger than ours. Uh, so it's just now knocking on 1.9%, but that's because it's been shrinking. Anyway, um, as you get faster and faster body growth, the deposition of protein in the cells outstrips the rate of your ability to make DHA. And this is DHA from alpha-linolenic acid That's originally yeah. in the leaves of plants yeah. and the process of turning that into DHA is very slow and energy expensive and needs nutrients. Right. And, and so the DHA falls as body growth mm-hmm. increases. Take the squirrel, 2.5% you take the rhinoceros, 0.01%. That's the ratio of brain <laughs> to body. Big body, yeah. tiny brain. Uh, just a little brain in a, a one-time body weight, you know. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and just, just let me take, make the point that the rhinoceros puts on one ton of body weight in four years, getting all the protein it needs from the simplest food resource, namely grass, for it can't make a brain. Now, you, you, you were looking at mammalian species, and to sort of um, squeeze the juice out of the conditions of existence, what were the conditions of existence that led the dinosaurs, so these are egg, you know, these are uh, egg reptiles, to have such a small brain? Well, uh, I mean, that's an interesting point. In fact, it's uh, pivotal, uh, because the, uh, the, the, the big extinction event came and um, the reptiles had tiny, tiny, tiny brains. And all the egg-laying mammals, animals, um, have tiny brains, small brains. Um, the reason for that is very elementary. The, the, the new life form gets just one squirt of good things. So um, you now come to the great extinction and there were mammals before this, but they were not really doing very much, and they were very small. But we now had, this is, this is quite interesting, because um, I'm not terribly sure if you want to go into this, but it, uh, they, um, they would have had access to um, DHA if they could have made it. They probably weren't able to make it because the velocity of growth was so high for these big, big dinosaurs and things. <clears throat> but they wouldn't have had arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid is an omega-6. Yes, this is an omega-6. Now, what happened was that after the great extinction, you had an emergence of flowering plants with protected seeds. And these protected seeds had linoleic acid omega-6. And what we find today is that mammals require omega-6 for reproduction. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now go back to 60,000 years ago, or 60 million years ago, sorry, um, with the great extinction and the emergence of the flowering plants. You also had the emergence of the mammals who require the linoleic acid omega-6 that's in the flowering plants. This is Darwin's conditions of existence par excellence. And of course you were finding in the, you know, in the animals' brains that you looked at both 
high DHA and... And arachidonic acid. acid. Both, both are needed, both yeah. stuff from the sea and stuff from the land. Mm. So the interesting thing about of course, is linoleic acid is converted to arachidonic acid, and it's much easier to convert linoleic to arachidonic acid than it is to convert alpha-linolenic acid to DHA. So let's think what happened at, at this great switch. We had an egg-laying system. <clears throat> now we had a mammalian system, which starts with the egg sticking to the mother. Arachidonic acid produces a whole bunch of interesting oxidative products, which cause things to stick. Simple explanation for the emergence of the first step towards mammals. The egg, the egg stuck the instead of being thrown out. Yeah. And then you had the proliferation of a, whole, a vascular system and so on, mm. which is a, incidentally an arachidonic acid-rich system. Mm. The vascular system, and you get the um, building up of, of cells from the, the thing that's stuck. And you require a vascular system, for example, for organogenesis. Mm. If you don't have blood flowing, you can't make new organs. And the placenta, of course, is just and a then massive supply the, of blood vessels yeah. feeding in nutrients in our yeah. for nine months, yeah. rather than everything packed into an egg, and that's all you've got. Yeah. So that is the explanation for the big difference in brain size going from the reptiles to the mammals, and, of course, ultimately, the explanation for the emergence of the mammals in the first place. So just to sort of run that one by in a different way, fish, of course, have got lots of access to DHA, they see, yeah, 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 yeah. but they're not very clever. So no. why is that? Well, well come on. Uh, a cod lays about a million eggs. <laughs> and a male comes along and squirts fertilizer a lot. Oh my God. So you've already divided the, the nutrition by a million times. Yes. <laughs> and they've got what they've got. And they've they've got what they've got. It. But they, they do have a, a brain, of course. And, yeah. and they have vision, too. And vision is important because vision is DHA. Mm -hmm. DHA is vision. The photoreceptor is stuff, as we've talked about before, stuff full of DHA. It doesn't have much else. Yeah. So they can, they've got plenty of stuff for the eyeball but not much for the brain. So I was having a rather heated debate with a man, uh, a doctor uh, from the, used to be a surgeon in the American army, who, he only eats meat, no plants at all. And, uh, I, and, and, and his belief was that our evolution, you know, was, was based on just eating meat. And I did say, well, why are there no carnivores? Um, you know, just meat eaters, that is, who have really large brains. And I'm referring here to lions and cats, who, of course, have bigger brains than, than rabbits. But no. again, what's, what, how does that work? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the land-based food web just doesn't produce much DHA. Mm. It's as simple as that. You get it from the marine food web. And that explains why um, Homo sapiens had to have evolved in making the best of both worlds. The marine food. So think about it. Omega-3 uh, uh, from the sea, omega-6 yeah, from the land. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, think, think about it. A woman who's pregnant could wander along the coastline and, and it would be absolutely swamped with all sorts of things. Uh, mussels, oysters, um, crayfish and uh, fish caught in the rocky pools and all this kind of stuff and it would be just so rich at that time we don't we don't have any conception of this because it's just been been swept away in recent time and and also pollution has killed off a lot of it but uh, way back in in those millions of years ago the, the richest food resource would have been around the coastline Easy picking. It's easy picking. And uh, George, uh, um, David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough has commented on this. He said, it's a much simpler thing to, to just get food for your uh, developing newborn. And you oh, don't have to go that far back. I was reading in your book about New York was the oyster capital. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Well, not only that, but I mean, in London, the uh, the beginning in 1900s, the, the the barman had notices: oysters free with your beer. Every morning, they go out and collect oysters from the Thames and put them on the bar, free for people who ate the beer, who drank, paid for the beer. So, just as you know, explore it a different way. Cats, for example, you know, they're pretty bright and they have very good eyesight in the dark. Oh yeah. And um, but they're really not very. Um, they don't really like plant-based they want to eat the rabbit they, they want to eat meat yes yes What's well meat, the meat provides them with arachidonic acid and it mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, don't forget that they also like fish as well <coughs> <laughs> they do indeed and uh, have they sort of um, outsourced their ability to convert these essential fats by eating, oh yes eating the herb it's quite interesting that we published this in nature and um, 19, what, when was it, uh, 75, I think, uh, that uh, the cats couldn't make arachidonic acid or DHA from plant-based sources. And uh, um, a lady called Scott, who works at the Royal Free, also published later saying that they can't make vitamin A from beta-carotene. And what we suggested in our paper that we referred to earlier, which was published on Monday last, um, that uh, <coughs> what this evidence we've, we've described about the way that D.A. Chaber uh, performs this trick in the photoreception, um, it, it puts it on a par with vitamin A because you know, it's the same thing, story. You can get make D.H.A. from um, plant-based sources. You can make vitamin A from plant-based sources, but we talk about vitamin A specifically because it's so difficult to make. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about beta-carotene as being the essential thing. We talk about vitamin A. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to talk about DHA in the same way. Mm. In other words, cut straight to um, DHA. Yeah. So your hypothesis really is that the available supply of um, Preformed DHA as in marine food, plus a supply of omega-6 uh, from plant food, which can be converted into arachidonic acid, plus other nutrients yeah. such as B12, iodine, etc., was the magic formula, the conditions of existence that yeah. created our brain evolution. Yeah, and, and don't forget the um, trace elements that are so rich in the marine food web as well. Iodine is one of the best examples because um, <clears throat> iodine deficiency, of course, creates um, mental retardation and cretinism. Mm. And zinc, selenium, copper, and manganese are also critically important because they are part of the enzyme systems that protect the brain against per- peroxidation. And um, don't forget that the brain uses more oxygen than any other tissue. And so it's a heavy user of oxygen. And um, it needs serious protection. And nature builds its own protective systems with the um, copper, manganese, and zinc, and selenium enzyme systems. Antioxidants. Antioxidant systems, yes. And the richest sources are in the marine food web. Oysters are particularly good. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I read... So are mussels, actually. I read that the richest source of DHA of all is in caviar. Is it? I didn't know that. (laughs) It's it's richest in the fish, eggs. All right. But the richest egg of all is the, is, is the caviar. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that new bit of information. Wonderful. <laughs> so coming back to our shrinking brains, 10,000 years ago, more or less, we effectively stopped being predominantly hunter-gatherers along the water's edge, because that's obviously yeah. where we will have had to migrate. And we start being peasant farmers with a much more land-based diet, yeah. plant food plus meat and milk, we get into herding. Yeah. Do you think that was the start of the demise? Uh, I suspect that was... Um, well, I suspect there must have been throughout the evolution of Homo sapiens, because uh, Homo sapiens is a very curious animal. It likes to investigate things, a little bit like cats. And um, so there have been waves that have gone inland and gone all, into all sorts of different parts of the world. But the fundamental fact is that you could not evolve a big brain without access to the marine food web. And the 
obvious turning point is the um, development of land food. And the uh, worst turning point is a more recent time with intensification of land food based and the slip towards a more land-based intensified production system to keep us nourished. And I'm sure that the, 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 those are the two big steps that have resulted in what we're now seeing. Now, a few weeks ago, there was a paper in uh, older adults that showed that the omega-3 index, which is actually what we, we are now measuring in the charity Food for the Brain, um, predicted or correlated with both brain size and mm. cognitive function. Okay. So the, to what extent does omega-3 and marine food uh, intake predict mental health? I'm thinking here of depression, suicide, homicide, ADHD. And well, well, Joe, Joe Hebron has published a lot on this, and it's not my field by any means. But, I mean, I think he's, uh, the data that he's produced and, uh, is pretty convincing. And um, the... Uh, one of the big things that, that is actually extraordinarily has not really been taken notice of was the, a paper that he published in 2007 together with the um, Bristol people, Jane Golding and company, um, called, it's called the ASPAC study, uh, the Avon Longitudinal Study. And what they did was they studied the what the mother did during the pregnancy and followed up children to eight years of age. There were 14,000 or more pregnancies that they studied. This is the biggest and longest longitudinal study that's ever been done. And um, they, 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 they tried to get rid of a, a, a single fact and uh, controlling for some 27 confounding factors. They couldn't get rid of the fact that the verbal reasoning power, motor function, behavioral scores of the children at eight years of age depended on the amount of fish and seafood the mother ate during the pregnancy. It's a straight line, Patrick, mm. straight line. The more she ate, the better and healthier the children were. It's, um, I know at... Uh, this is a big number, 14,000 pregnancies. No, it, it is. And I know at Chelsea and Westminster um, campus uh, with your um, fellow scientists at Imperial, uh, you've been looking at, uh, you know, blood levels of both omega-3 but also oleic acid in relation to concerns with development in the pregnant oh. woman and, and outcome. So what, tell, tell me a bit about that. Well, <clears throat> the first point was that um, we did a study of, of about 300 pregnancies and we, we used the membrane of the red cell as a piece of it's a piece of maternal tissue, so it's a very good indicator of maternal status. The plasma is variable from day to day, but the red cell is a kind of integrated history over the lifespan of the red cell itself. Because it lives about 120 months, days, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, 120 days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we use the red cell as an indicator of maternal lipid status. And it turned out that a fatty acid called oleic acid, uh, which is allegedly a non-essential fatty acid, um, it's got one double bond. That's uh, what olive oil is, really. It's sort of, yeah, it's the fatty, yeah, olive oil fatty acid. Um, oleic acid level predicted with a very high degree of confidence preterm birth. Um, and the interesting thing about this is, although there's, there's 300, uh, only 300 was, is not a big enough study for going into s serious mental disorders and things like that at birth, um, or, or serious brain disorders, should I say. Uh, but 
the what happens in the cell membrane is it incorporates arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. These are both highly unsaturated fatty acids. When the levels of the unsaturation goes down through deficiency, oleic acid goes up in an attempt to replace the membrane fluidity structure. Mm. So the fact that oleic acid predicts preterm birth also means that it's likely to predict preterm brain disorders, disorders during, during pregnancy. Because it's, it's a sort of filler. <coughs> yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But do all the communication. Yeah, but, but it's, a, it's a sort of, it's an interesting thought that actually nature has some kind of backup mm. for deficiencies mm-hmm. of, of these things. And, um, uh, but, but at the end of the day, it doesn't work. But there's a price to pay. <clears throat> so, I mean, this, this, this makes me, uh, you know, terribly concerned that any woman uh, wishing to become pregnant really has to check their omega-3 status. And, and one of the questions there, which um, I'd like to ask you, <clears throat> I remember an exchange recently with... Uh, Joe Hibbler, who's a superb psychiatrist, and I'd asked him how much omega-3, because uh, he, he uses fish oil supplements as well as eating fish, uh-huh. and how much does he give to his um, depressed patients? And he said <laughs> he said four grams, which is quite oh, a lot. I mean, it's probably three big capsules. <clears throat> and uh, he said not only do they become not depressed and extremely content, but uh, they have a much better sex life. It improves, <laughs> it improves um, uh, orgasms. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting as to, you know, why did we stay on the land and the dolphin, which has every single bone that we have in our hands and arms and its flippers and the seals, you know, why did they leave and commit fully to the ocean and we stayed on the land and what's omega-3 got to do with that and what is an optimum intake? Well, I think this is, I, I, I'm not going to talk about optimum intakes. I'm, I'm not a, f- a fan of um, um Recommendations, because I think a lot of the recommendations are so far out from what we are. Uh, the idea of a wild food base mm-hmm. um, that uh, uh, there's absolutely no, v- virtually no um, similarity between what we're eating today and what powered encephalization was the wild foods from land and sea. So, um, yeah, uh, what was your question? <laughs> Well, yes. Why did they leave the land? Oh, why did they leave the land? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Yes. I I think Joe Hibben has the answer that um, when they started noshing on on fish and seafoods and things like that, they they got happier and happier and um, wanted to explore further and further until the time came when they really just became sea sea mammals. I mean, the dolphin, for example, has... has, um, as you say, it has all the bones of the human hand and the human arm inside its flippers. Now, uh, it, this is a crazy thing because I mean, who would have thought that to create a paddle, you would evolve a hand? It's ridiculous. Um, so this this is a kind of an epigenetic change where, in fact, what happened was the broke bones shrank, and the flippers and the skin just covered the. The fingers, and now you have a flipper. But um, the interesting thing, of course, about dolphin and, and a lot of marine mammals, they have huge brains. Mm. Dolphin has 1,700 cc's of cranial capacity. Unfortunately, it can't use the whole of it because if it did, it would drown. So it only uses one half of the brain and lets the other half sleep. It's uh, so, so. got a backup system <laughs> yeah. uh, so it can keep going. Yeah, no. sleep. I mean, it's fascinating, that, isn't it, how yeah. sleep is vital, you know, whatever Oh, sleep is terribly do. important, yeah. Yeah, and what's actually going on in sleep? You know, mm-hmm. uh, what's the process of sleep in relation to the brain? Well... <clears throat> I think the evidence is that and there's not a lot of it um, is that what happens during sleep is that you reconstitute uh, all the membranes that have been bust and worn out during the daytime when you've been doing things and so there's effectively a, a reconstitution and effectively a, 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 a securing of things that you might have learnt for example during the day and um, 
Uh, I, th I think that's what's going on during sleep. So, I was, so that's a good point because it, what it means is that if you take supplements, it'd be a good idea to take them before you go to sleep. That's a good point. I mean, the point about asking about optimum and supplements and so on is that, I mean, I remember when uh, they discovered what they called um, uh, the Paviland lady uh, in the Gao Peninsula, which is where I come from in, in Wales, I think 40,000 year old Homo sapiens, I think that's about <laughs> right. And they assumed it was a woman because uh, uh, there was a whole lot of, you know, jewellery, necklaces, etc., exquisitely made out of shells. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the BBC, uh, you know, uh, presenters saying they would have been wondering the planes, you know, sort of spearing antelope or whatever. But uh, when they looked at the, the DNA evidence and the bones, I mean, at least a fifth of the diet was marine food. Right. And I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I have to assume that they were expending two or three times more calories than we do. I mean, they didn't have fridges, they didn't have right, right, you know, right, food right. delivery and all the rest of it. And that makes me think that half of my diet would need to be marine food today to actually get close to not just omega-3, but also mm. phospholipids and yeah. B12 and iodine and yeah. all those minerals and so on. So, so the question then is, is, you know, how do I get close to this? And perhaps the way to, you know, get into that is also, um, you know, what's been happening in Japan, which I know you've had a lot of influence on. So a lot of people don't eat fish. I mean, it's extraordinary. Less than 5% of children are even reaching the basic you know, recommendations. They don't eat fish. The oceans are polluted. Um, we've got a growing population. We've got a lack of fish. Uh, you know, what's the solution? What's the solution? Oh, well, first thing, we've got to clean up our shitty acts. Mm. And um, we, uh, I mean, you take um, people for who go surfing, and they have surface for um, I, I, they use very rude words, so I won't, won't use them on on air. But they, you know, there's a guy who was surfing in the winter, and, and um, he came out of having dived in to the, the sea, popped up again, and there was a human turd. Mm. And water companies had sort of switched off and put a lot of SH1T into, into the sewage, in, in mm. sewage into the, uh, the sea because they didn't think people were were swimming at these beaches. And there they were, swimming in amongst a whole lot of shit. Mm. I, I mean, it's just unbelievable. When uh, I, I got back from East Africa in in 1965, <clears throat> I said to our family in Edinburgh, let's go down a trip memory lane to Cramontin. Now, in my early youth, my father used to take us to Cramontin to celebrate, and he loved celebrations. <laughs> he was a great celebrator guy. And um, it, the reason for that was because Cramontin was famous for its fish and seafood, because mm -hmm. the proprietor used to go down to the foreshore early morning gather up the seafood for supper at night. And uh, so this, our, this was going to be a wonderful re rebirth experience of the, the fish and seafood from Cramont Inn. And lovely July summer evening, and we walked down to the foreshore after parking the car to, uh, and, and to have a look at this wonderful bridge that crosses first and fourth. And there, straight in front of us, was a brand new yellow Department of Environment notice. Danger. Muscles unfit for human consumption. The proprietor did not have anything like what he had on the menu when we actually sat down to dinner. And the first or fourth had been killed in my lifetime by reckless pollution. And I went back a few years later to um, just to see if the notice was still there, and it, they replaced it with a, new, a newer notice, which was a bit more elaborate. And I was talking to one of the people who were just standing around uh, about this notice. And he told me, he said, the vets now tell people not tell people to walk their dogs on the leash if they're going around the foreshore in case they eat any of the poisoned seafood. Mm. I mean, this is just awful. And it's global as well. Edinburgh's not the only place that's doing that. It, it, it's awful. So we've got to clean up the act. 
We really do. I mean, this has got to be the first thing that's done it, is people clean, clean up uh, the mess that we're creating in the oceans. There's all this plastic stuff that they say. It, it's just unbelievably stupid. And um, it, it's a measure of, of, of our shrinking brain, that people are so stupid to do this sort of stuff. So on a more positive note, Japan, um, they've been paying a lot more attention to what you have to yes, say. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, you, you uh, were uh, awarded the Order of the Rising Sun. Yeah. So what's Japan up to that we're not? Well, well 19, uh, 1990, the uh, Japanese government uh, asked me, and they said that my wife should come as well, to visit Japan and, and lecture on this whole story because I mean we've been publishing about this for donkey's years um, this shrinking brain stuff's not not overnight it's not new by any means and they knew what we've been publishing about the significance of the marine food web to the brain and they, they so, so we were we were invited there and um, um, I had to give a lecture at practically every Japanese university and I gave a lecture in the Yamaha Hall and, and it was all on television and broadcast throughout the country and at the end of the um, uh, the visitation I was at the ministry and there was a long table with the minister at the far end and Doctor Who and Professor that and Professor somebody else all, all round this table and, the, and, and he, he said the minister said, I know what you've actually been talking about. Saw you on television. Listen to what you said. Would you please just review the story for us again? So I sat there and thought, oh, <laughs> this is it. And um, so I, I, I went through the story about the significance of marine food webs of brain development and evolution of homo sapiens and what, what was going wrong now and why and how we had said it was going to go wrong in 72 etc 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 and um, I, I, I was convinced he was going to going to sleep and I was really sort of wondering whether I <laughs> anyway uh, after I finished he raised his eyebrows and he said Professor Crawford, thank you for telling us that we should agriculturalize the oceans, and that's what we're going to do. That was it. And now they have this great, um, between Yokohama, uh, this great sort of um, uh, marine agriculture, as I call it, they call it ranching, um, between two islands. Uh, which was a f it started off in 1991, and now it's produ producing um, increasing productivity of the marine food web threefold, whereas elsewhere it's diminishing. And what they've done is very elementary. You know, we have, um, and you will, I'm sure will see it around your farms and things like that. Green pastures for our cows and our sheep and so on and so forth. So Takahiro Tanaka, who's responsible for this, he has green pastures in the sea. Planting what what could be simpler? Yeah, seagrass. He, he's cleaned up the ocean bed, which has been destroyed by trawling, mm -hmm. and been actually marine deserts, mm -hmm. and he's planted them with marine grass. And that does two things. One is that it, it, it provides food for the, the vegetarian fish and other things. And it also provides haven for the little tiny f baby fish to hide from the predators. And they have artificial reefs. And these artificial reefs are, uh, they have seven target fish species. And of the seven target fish species, they have different ecologies. So these artificial reefs are designed to fit with the ecological requirements of the individual species, seven species. For example, one of them uh, likes to go into little holes and things like that. So the artificial reef is made up with tons and tons of holes. It, it's also so elementary. And it's, it's just... Uh, has to be done. 
So on a global are, scale. They are creating the conditions of existence exactly. necessary I, to bring back all the marine life. That's right, exactly so. And of course, it's not only the fish. These also, they've also got uh, oysters and mussel and all the rest. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. I mean, with mm -hmm. oysters, mussels, crayfish, lobsters, crabs, so on. In New Zealand, quite interesting because they do a lot of mussel farming. Mm -hmm. And um, the mussel farms are also um, fish farms because a lot of the fish like to come and eat the, <laughs> eat the mussels. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the mussels fall off the ropes onto the ground. And so you get, it's actually a crab farm as well. <laughs> <laughs> So they're all coming back. So it's, it's, it is elementary impossible, but you have to have clean water. Mm -hmm. But now you think of the UK, we've got a whole stack of islands mm -hmm. um, with, with um, beautiful clean water around them. It's just, in fact, the, the UK has got a lot of clean water regions, not all bad by any means, uh, where people are already doing oysters and people actually getting more and more interested in expanding oyster and mussel production in the UK. But we could actually be self-sufficient in food if we got to grips with this, with all the, uh, with the huge uh, um, coastal areas that we've got. We could be self-sufficient in food, and we should be, because with an increase in population, putting on another billion within the next 10 years, and foresight saying that, um, as a report to government, saying we, there is no more land available for arable use. We have the same problem with land-based food production as we have actually with the marine environment. So, but we haven't started to do what they did 10,000 years ago. Yeah, we've been hunter-gatherers in the ocean. Well, yeah. And now we've got to become marine agriculturalists. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. So it is extraordinary. I mean, at our charity, foodwiththebrain.org, we've now tested, I looked today, 410,000 people's cognitive function. They redo the test every six months. We're collecting information on their diet and lifestyle. We've now introduced uh, and are testing the omega-3 index, which is a red yeah. blood cell measure. Yeah. So we can track these things. But I fear, uh, I mean, this is big data, and, and I hope th that it will be another piece to, you know, wake up the authorities. But I do, <coughs> I do worry when you have all this evidence and all these reports and still nothing is done. But... Anyway, you have provided a way forward uh, if people will listen. So we come to the end of our podcast, and I'd like to ask you to close with some final words, the core of your message, and what we, the listeners, must do, both for our own health um, and for our children and for the health and survival of humanity as we know it. Hmm. That's difficult. I think... The answer to your question really is that we need to increase the consumption across the board of fish and seafood. And we need governments to listen to the five audits of health that have put brain disorders top of the list. And the recent Brain Awareness Week, talking of a global health emergency. It is so serious, it's a threat to the children and their children to come. And we are responsible for these children. And we have to take action. Professor Michael Crawford, thank you so sincerely for a lifetime of extraordinary work. And uh, we will keep banging the drum um, and make sure that more and more people are aware of the absolutely vital conditions of existence, which uh, in effect I call optimum nutrition. Yes, exactly so. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure.